How much money could you have made on GameStop? Why is investing literacy so poor? How many stocks is too many stocks for your portfolio? He who plans early plans twice. Agree or disagree? Besides investing, what other situations are benefited by inertia, non-activity, rather than activity? Do you agree with these cultural generalizations shared this week about the American Middle West, Midwesterners? Why did I follow you on Twitter? Do you, dear listeners, see any connections between crypto and Linux? And finally, I thank you by saying thank you. You reply to me, no problem. This has never rubbed me the right way, but is this simply generational? Did I just ask nine questions in a row? Are these the nine mailbag items on this week's podcast previewed? Does Betteridge's Law apply to any of the questions I've just asked besides the last one? It's time. Let's go. October mailbag only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. You may have already guessed there are nine mailbag items to talk through this week. Very much looking forward to all nine of them, having previewed each as a question, not a headline, betteridge, a question in this week's opening. Well, let's look back at the month that was. There were just three previous podcasts this month for Rule Breaker Investing. The first on October 6th was Mental Tips, Tricks, and Life Hacks, Volume 6. That certainly generated some mail. We'll be talking through some of yours some of what we learned together. Then the following week was my nine foolish truths that I hold to be self-evident 2021 version. That one was on October 13th. I do that every two years, that same week of October. I hope that you enjoyed it. In fact, I hope it sounded a little repetitive to you because if it did, that means that you've been around long enough that you kind of get in it. And I'm delighted to know that. I'm also always delighted to roll out the red carpet to anybody and everybody who is new this week of the podcast or any other, and nine foolish truths I hold to be self-evident. Well, if you're new this week, I would highly encourage you to listen back a couple of weeks and hear what we take for granted, which is really important to know before you get started with us on Rule Breaker Investing. And then, of course, last week, I think it was a tour de force. Personally, I loved this podcast, Conscious Politics with Matthew Dad. Now, conscious, we talk a lot about on this podcast in many different contexts. Politics, Rarely so. To put those two together, though, and have somebody who is silver-tongued and actually a practitioner of it himself, I was excited to have that conversation with Matthew Dowd. And that was the month that was, which has generated, as usual, a motley array of mailbag items. And in fact, I'll be joined by a couple of guest stars today. I've got Jim Gillies coming right up real soon, his debut on Rule Breaker Investing, and then a regular go-to guest toward the end of the show, Aaron Bush. So those are my two guest stars this week. Now, I want to mention before we really get started this week that next week I'm pretty excited to be joined by longtime fool and multiple time past guest on this show, Matt Argusinger, to talk about a subject we rarely touch on Rule Breaker Investing. And yet it's such a big and broad subject. And could I have a better tour guide, could you, than Matt Argusinger? So, real estate investing next week on Rule Breaker Investing. Definitely rubbing my hands together about that one ahead of time. Well, before we get started with our nine Rule Breaker mailbag items, let's do a few hot takes from Twitter from the month that was. 
and really three to share with you this month. The first one, frequent correspondent Jason Moore at Jiminy Jillikers. Love this. Thank you, Jason. Quote, and he's quoting Matthew Dowd from last week's podcast, if you tell the truth, you don't have to have a good memory. Jason, you wrote, at Matthew J. Dowd, dropping one quotable quote after another this week on at RBI Podcast. A focus on conscious politics is the breath of fresh air much needed in today's environment. I highly recommend this week's episode. Thank you, Jason. From an entirely different angle, Meredith K at Meredith K on Twitter. That means Meredith has probably been on Twitter a while because there are probably lots of other Meredith Ks who didn't get to be at Meredith K. So well played, Meredith. You wrote, for many years, I took great pride in so-called bargain purchases on clothes, home goods, etc. So of the six rule breaker stock traits, the stock having strong past price appreciation still doesn't come naturally to me but I'm far better than I used to be and actively work on it thanks to you. Meredith goes on, I think of this saying, quote, if you get 25% off $1,000, you still spent $750. You didn't save $250, end quote. Whether you spent $750 or $1,000, Meredith goes on, how long will it bring utility? And how much utility and joy does it bring matters a lot more, both in regards to stocks and purchases in general. By the way, I think these are good pre-holiday reminders to many of us as well. Meredith, you closed it out with, it made me think there should be six rule breaker traits for purchases other than stocks and maybe in many other areas. It could be interesting having other hashtag rule breakers on at RBI podcast in various fields to give their rules. Well, that's a really lovely thought, Meredith, and we may go there at some point in future. I certainly have sometimes thought of other lists of six that feel rule breakery, and this this could be one of them. Thank you so much for sharing. And the last one up, well, it's not just one tweet. It's a few from at Tretter86, Ryan Tretter, who brought much amusement, at least to me, probably to a number of others reading you on Twitter in the past week or so, Ryan. You started with this. You wrote, sitting in the car with my four-year-old and turned on at RBI podcast, and I hear a voice chime in from the back. Ah! That's UGH spelled U-G-H-H-H with my interpretation. Ah! Not David Gardner. Turn on Mindy and Guy Raz. <laughs> Who knew she was listening? Ryan writes at David G. Fool, etc. Jason, you responded, I got a wide-eyed thank you from my 10-year-old last month when I showed him we are part owners of Roblox. And Ryan, you closed out that brief exchange with, I like to think some of what David, his fellow fools, and stellar guests are saying is sinking in a little as we drive along. My six-year-old son has certainly started asking me questions like, what's a company? Or can you buy a stock of Minecraft? And you were rolling on the floor laughing at that as I am with you, Ryan. I'm also loving that your four-year-old would rather listen to Mindy and Guy Raz, and I totally get that. I'm honored, but I was also just delighted by a tweet you followed on with some days later. You wrote, had a proud dad moment in the car today with my six-year-old son while listening to David on the Rule Breaker Investing podcast. Six-year-old, dad, I want to be an investor when I grow up. Me, do you know what an investor is? Six-year-old, yeah, they pick stocks like David Gardner. Well, I am deeply honored. I was the first to point out to you on Twitter, Ryan, that you, i.e. the six-year-old's dad, is also an investor, is also someone who picks stocks. So I think that you are the best investor model for your six-year-old. And one day we can get that four-year-old on board as well, right? 
right? But this reminds me to say in closing that one of the life hacks, I think I covered this in a previous episode a few years ago, and I share this out with all parents, but especially parents of young kids. One of the better things I did as a parent of three young kids back in the day was to, whenever they said something funny, crazy, outrageous, I would immediately timestamp that and copy it down in my smartphone. I would put the exact date and time it was said and what the exchange was said verbatim as best I could remember. And boy, have I been loaded up for years now with amazing lines for toasts given at graduations, uh, anniversaries, weddings, all kinds of family special moments. So Ryan, I'm so glad you wrote those down. I highly encourage all young parents hearing me right now to spend that extra moment and just write it down with a timestamp. Takes two minutes. You'll be so grateful. Save it somewhere where you can find it 18 years later. You will be so grateful. You did much hilarity will ensue. All right. Rule breaker mailbag item number one. Well, as I mentioned earlier, I've got two guest stars this week. And the first one is my friend, Jim Gillies. Jim will be joining me for this well, somewhat Jim Gilly's story and a second point to come up. But before we get into this, Jim, let me just first say thank you so much for making your Rule Breaker Investing podcast debut this second. Thank you, David. Uh, yeah, I'm like, I think this is the last fool podcast for me to come on. And I'm kind of, I'm a fish out of water in the Rule Breaker uh, end of the pond most of the time. So this is uh, thrilling to me. Well, that's kind of you to say. I think that you are a wonderful rule breaker in many ways. We may have overlap in our investing approach and we may have areas of uniqueness, but that would be true of me with almost anybody else on planet Earth. Jim, I've so enjoyed your comments, commentary on Motley Fool Live, the morning show, so much that you've done over the last year plus, but it's been a lot of years. Jim, when did you get started as a fellow fool? Uh, I think I came officially on board on Canada Day, July 1st, 2005. But I was a longtime board member, and I I subscribed to practically every uh, one at the time, all all the newsletters at the time that were there, Stock Advisor, Gems, Rule Breakers. So I, I I've been a while, I've been around longer than that. That's wonderful. And Jim, I'm going to ask you to do something that's unfair to you. But would you, in approximately thirty seconds, explain your life before the Motley Fool, and then I'm prepping you for this. Then after we cover that, I'm going to ask you for thirty seconds more in terms of what you're doing today at the Motley Fool. Are you ready to play both games? Sure, let's hit it. Awesome. So game number one, Jim Gillies, who were you before 2005? Uh, well, David, I was a professional engineer. I have a couple of engineering degrees hanging on the wall, which you can't see behind me here. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I specialize in process redesign, civil engineering, environmental engineering. But I found my niche working in industry, uh, basically uh, taking old processes that have had, shall we say, some uh, environmentally dubious impacts and redesigning them, rebuilding them, and uh, trying to make the world a better place from that perspective. So That is wonderful, Jim, and thank you for sharing that. I, I, I'm remiss in not asking you for 15 seconds more. What was the moment that had you become a fool? How did that happen? Well, David, I'm going to commit. I'm going to admit to a felony here. Uh, I did steal the original Motley Fool investment guide. Now I bought it from my mom, so I stole it from my mom. <laughs> I knew nothing about investing. I was, like I said, I was an engineer. I was perfectly happy in my engineering life. Uh, I bought the book from my mom because she talked about, you know, I want to learn this investing thing as I approach retirement. She never read it. I stole it from her. I read it in a night. And that kind of, I mean, it, it sounds, it sounds a little hokey and cheesy. It's a true story. It like basically changed the trajectory of my life. That's amazing. And Jim, what do you do at the Motley Fool today? 
Uh, I am the lead advisor for Hidden Gems Canada, focused on picking small caps for Canadian investors. I'm also uh, just analyst at large, advisor at large for all of the other Canadian products, as is everyone else here in Fool Canada, because uh, uh, we have a lot of products and we have a small team, so we like to be versatile. So I'm on Stock Advisor Canada, Dividend Investor Canada, Microcap Mission, which is our obviously our microcap offering. Uh, I've held, I've had been in a bunch of other services in the Fool over the years, so. Yeah, it's I'm 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 kind of uh, I'm kind of the the small, the unloved, often the so-called garbage <laughs> stocks, uh, but it's it's my niche, so it's good. Well, one thing we've done well at the Fool over the years, and that's about twenty nine of them at this point, is we've hired often the best available athletes, and then we ask them as kind of generalists, would you, by the way, play baseball? Also, cornhole. Also, would you compete in the decathlon for us? And that's what you do to best available athletes. You just ask them to show up, and they do a great job. Jim, I'm delighted to think it's been 16 years, and let's let's not make it 16 more years before you return on Rule Breaker Investing Podcast, but that's okay. then. That's then. This is now. Rule Breaker mailbag item number one, entitled, My Investing Story from W.D. Harris. Found my first wealth when I sold my business, W.D. writes. Sold my first stock, Nortel. That's a Canadian company, Jim Gillies. You know that. Was Make, a Canadian. Uh, good point. Good point. Making W.D. writes 800%. Again, we're sharing this mailbag item because it's a remarkable story, and I'm Jim's part of the story, and that's why I wanted to hear some Jim Gillies' take about this story. Let's continue the story. So, Sold my second stock, AmeriCredit, too soon, making 136%, W.D. Harris writes. Bought more Nortel and held it into bankruptcy after ignoring a 2005, I think we all understand what that date might mean, Motley Fool newsletter. He goes on, saved $180,000 working freelance in a profit-sharing 401k, invested in Berkshire Hathaway. Sold my Berkshire in November 2019 for $189,000 in cash. COVID ended my 40-year career, age 69. Unemployed, WD goes on, I joined Stock Advisor, Rule Breakers, and I built a Fulio. That's his way of saying a portfolio. Appreciate that. A Fulio of recommendations, which soon doubled. Trimmed my Fulio to 50 stocks, raising $101,000. Jim Gillies said GameStop wasn't dead yet. GameStop was a three-legged stool. One, new console cycle. Two, Ryan Cohen turnaround. Three, overshorted short squeeze. Now, I realize, Jim, you and I could talk about GameStop, but we're really not going to talk too much about GameStop. We have limited time, and we're going to focus on this remarkable story. So WD goes on nearing the end here. I bought $101,000 GameStop at $4.76 a share before Reddit discovered it, exited GameStop with $6.5 million, a 50-plus stock folio, advancing 10% compounding by 37 years. I listen daily to Motley Fool Live, to Backstage Pass, Rule Breaker Podcasts, Morgan Housel, adding fuel to winners, enjoying independence. We are so thankful for this fool miracle. Signed, W.D. Harris, who lists himself as W.D. Fool, and that's with quite a lot of O's. Wow. So, Jim, I shared this note with you via Slack earlier today. said, love to have you on. You said, 
you knew the story. I did know the story. It was communicated to me before. I have actually talked with Danny Harris a couple of times via email. Uh, he's relayed a version of this story to me. Um, you know, how people say something makes their day or makes their week. This story made my millennium. Um, this was, I, I certainly did not expect what happened with GameStop to do what it did to the extent. Uh, I was kind of pounding the table a little bit internally in our full IQ tool and talking to other analysts um, at about $5 a share, roughly where uh, Danny, where WD had this. Um, this is the first time I've learned that, that, that Danny is 69 or I guess maybe 70 now, uh, so that this is a retirement uh, thing, which I am thrilled about, uh, maybe even more. But I know I was talking about GameStop on Motley Fool Live about a year ago at, at $5. I recommended it in Hidden Gems Canada at $9 to um, a collective raised Spocky and eyebrow. Like, are you serious? <laughs> and I'm and, like, and yes. Jim, Jim, just to mention, mine was also raised a little bit. GameStop is a former Motley Fool stock advisor recommendation attributed to me because I'm the one who picked it and I'm a lifetime gamer. And I've loved my GameStop over the years. But some years ago, I decided this is not a company that's going to be that much more relevant going forward. I found myself buying consoles, even let alone games on Amazon. I had felt as if the world had passed GameStop by. We're not here to discuss that right now. It's an interesting question, but I, I felt I should put my cards on the table just, just to show I missed this, Jim. I missed this. And uh, back to you responding and thinking about this story. Well, and so, like I said, I did recommend it at about nine bucks in, in Hidden Gems Canada. <laughs> um, it did okay. I will say, though, that the the thesis, which which uh, W.D. Harris has very much got the three-legged stool here, he is correct. That was basically my uh, what I was seeing. Nice. Uh, and it didn't hurt that this company, you know, was basically you know, $400, $500 million market cap with a, a reasonable pathway to like that amount of money in cash. Like the, you weren't paying anything for the business. Um, we did exit, David. Uh, on the day when GameStop first hit 100 bucks, uh, we did exit from Hidden Gems Canada because the thesis has turned. And this is not a, this to my mind, this is not a long-term buy and hold. Uh, I have I have a lot of the reservations that you have about the long term viability of a retail game platform. Uh, I'm excited to see what Ryan Cohen does, but the valuation here is very different. Uh, the the squeeze is over, and you know when the Reddit crowd came calling, I said, you know, I was not expecting to 10x in four months. <laughs> I on this company, I feel that uh, prudence the the prudent man rule called me to take it off the table for fools in, in gems. Uh, I am glad to see that uh, W.D. Harris did also take his millions off the table. I hope he enjoys writing that tax bill. And I think it's, I think it's a great story. I think it's, um, you know, this is further proof that there's, there's always something interesting that you can find in almost every company out there. Well said. And I really do want to praise what you did, Jim, which was to lay out your whole thesis, not just on Motley Fool Live, where I think I saw it, but of course for our Motley Fool Canada members before that. And I mean, you nailed it. So I'm here to, I'm here to say I didn't participate, although 
ironically, this is in my portfolio today. One of the things we do at The Fool is we share the tickers that are in our portfolio. And that's true of everybody from a techie we just hired yesterday right to the co-founders. And you will see, some people have seen, GME is within my portfolio. That's because it was selected by one of my kids. I encourage my younger, now adult kids to speculate from time to time. And so he has speculated. He's actually underwater on his GameStop. But some people might look at that going, wait, Dave must love GameStop, or look, he's got to end. No, I don't really. I don't have much thought about it. I will point out for people who don't follow this stock on a daily basis, and those who are into it, follow this stock on a daily basis, but it's at 173 even today. So, wow. I mean, that move from nine to 100 is awesome, and we'd all take that. And it's even higher, but at a $14 billion market cap, not sure, Jim, you or I see the way forward in terms of a winning stock from here. It's a meme stock. It's been picked up with a lot of others. Uh, it's an interesting time. I think it's got to be one of the top 10 stories of 2021 meme stocks yep. easily. Oh, the places will go. You never know <laughs> who's listening to you or me or what they're doing. Sometimes we wouldn't necessarily do what they're doing or even endorse what they're doing. But when you hear stories like this, you got to pinch yourself and say, well, in your case, yeah, that made your millennium. Yep. Now, Jim, my obvious reason for inviting you this particular mailbag this particular week was rule breaker mailbag item number one. But hey, I've got you here. And I thought I'd love to hear your comments, Jim, on rule breaker mailbag item number two. Sylvie, will you hang with me five minutes more? Absolutely. Excellent. This one comes from Joel Jones. Dear Spiffy Pop, he writes, I'm a 37-year-old ear, nose, and throat surgeon with an MBA and economics degree. I went to my father for investing advice, Joel writes, and he told me, quote, the stock market is just professionalized gambling, exclamation point, end quote, and sent me to his financial advisor who recommended some index funds he had sold my dad with a 5% load fee. Now, pause it there for a sec. Many of our listeners may not even remember or think much about loads these days. It's kind of not as cool or prevalent as it once was. But let's be clear, the 5% load fee is a 5% upfront sales cost that you're paying. And you're basically just paying that to the manager to sell you the fund, to congratulate him or her that they got you to buy their fund. 5% of your assets gone off the top before you start getting invested, which is why The Motley Fool for many years a champion of index funds, I'm happy to say we are, has never liked load funds. <laughs> anyway, we're going to return to Joel's note here. He said, he'd sold my dad with a 5% load fee and high expense ratio. Something seemed rotten in the state of Denmark. Despite my background, I really had no investing experience. Real knowledge, Joel writes, has gained outside the classroom. Ironically, I signed up for the Motley Fool service one night while I was at a casino using the money I won <laughs> at Blackjack to buy stock advisors. So many people, so many stories. I love it. Joel closes, I love your service, investing philosophy and company culture. Why is it that investing literacy is so poor? It seems like many financial advisors are consciously or subconsciously hoodwinking us when they can't beat a low-cost S&P fund like Neo in the Matrix, I have taken the red pill. Given the evolution in the information age and online services like The Motley Fool, will we one day see a majority of us individual investors and the death of retail advisors? Cheers, Joel Jones, 
37-year-old ear, nose, and throat surgeon, Jim, with an MBA and an economics degree. This is beautiful because it allows me to dovetail right into a personal story. And, and by the way, um, Joel, when you, when you say, ask a majority of individual investors in the death of retail advisors, I say from your lips to God's ears. Um, <laughs> so my, my significant other, I'm going to, well, let's call her Lulu, as in the Lululemon ticker, because that's her name. Um, when I met Lulu, now, now Lulu is a professional. She's a chartered accountant. Hmm. She has a master's degree in accounting. So I want to emphasize that this is not a financially stupid individual, quite obviously. They don't, they don't hand out those degrees, you know, if you can't add, you know, two and two and get the same number every time. True that. Uh, and so, um, but, you know, we, we, we each had our own starter marriages, you know, to, to, to be ready for each other. And uh, so when I met her, she had, she is chartered accountant, extraordinarily financially disciplined. Okay. She had Every paycheck paid herself off the top going to one of these retail advisors who had saddled her with a host of really crappy mutual funds. No 5% front end loads, thankfully, but there were a number of back end loads. That is, you have, you don't pay to put your money in. Mm. You get socked on the tail end when you take your money out. Unless Don't let the door hit you on the way out, dear individual investor. Just seven plus years. So, So she had been extraordinarily disciplined for the decade before I met her every paycheck going into this thing. When I met her, she barely had the amount of money that she had contributed. And she had back-end loads. I said, okay, well, I, I can't predict the future. I don't know how long our relationship will last. But I can teach you all you need to know for investing. If you don't catch the bug and you don't love it like, like we do, I can, t- I can teach you what you need to know that you know we break up tomorrow, you're set for life. And she's kind of like, okay, look, that's, those are big words, buddy. Let's go. <laughs> and I introduced her to the concept of index funds, right? You know, she's already doing the right thing. She's already got the discipline. Mm. And we, we pulled everything out of where she was. We got rid of all those terrible mutual funds. We paid the back end load. She was a little reticent, a little bit that I said, no, trust me, this is for the best. Well, nine years later, almost. <laughs> So I guess I didn't need to teach her anything, Uh, but, you know, but we didn't know. Um, Nine years later, her account is up. She's, she's always had this discipline because she, she doesn't love investing. She, she just wants to get a market return and that's fine with her. Mm -hmm. She, she values um, comfort security more than, you know, finding the latest rule breaker or the latest, uh, you know, insane stock from me, Um, you know, and she's quite happy with that. Her portfolio has done, Excellent, frankly, over the past little while. And more importantly, she's done like over since since we did this, I think in 2013. Importantly, she hasn't needed me. Right. I mean, mm. that's like like this that, to me, that's I think that's great. Cause again, I could be gone tomorrow, uh, you know, a fatal bus accident. She she's still golden for the rest of her life and she's paid like and we're we're even at a no cost, a zero cost broker now. So you are correct, Joel, that the something was indeed rotten in the state of Denmark. Um, I actually think the world needs more, even if even if we're just helping fools at a level like what Lulu does, which is just index funds and nothing more. 
I think that's great. I don't think I would much rather see someone paying 10 basis points or 15 basis points on an S&P 500 index fund, knowing that you have exposure to all of the great companies in that in the S&P 500. Mm -hmm. And, and, and just go with that. And if you have a, 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 you, you are dollar cost averaging into that for two and three decades, you will be fine. But I, I don't think there's enough of even just that out there. I know I've ter- certainly talked to a number of friends, family, neighbors, and it's the same stuff I always talk about. Index funds first, learn what the stock market is, learn about, you know, the basics of investing. I've got a good friend from almost 40 years now, which kind of dates me a little bit. Uh, <laughs> but but he, I mean, he, he he's, he's a high school vice principal. He just started, we just got him started this summer in index fund investing. And and I, I, I gave him Morgan Housel's book. I encouraged him to pick up Joel Greenblatt's uh, The Little Book That Beats the Market. Uh, he's devoured both of those. Mm. I, I think we might have a budding fool on our hands, David. But, you know, it, it's one of these things where, but even if we don't, I know he's going to be fine for the rest of his life. I think, And I think that's a good thing. So. Well, and I thank you for sharing that story, Jim. You know, it reminds me, uh, this is very true of you, and I think a number of others that we know as fellow fools. You can't not want to spread some financial literacy. I mean, you've got friends, family, you've got people that you are coworkers. How could you not want to save them a 5% load on their whole account or help them understand uh, the financial literacy that they missed. You know, one of the learnings that we've had so far from the Motley Fool Foundation, Jim, which is certainly going to be looking at some of this and trying to fix some of this, is that the reason there's not more financial literacy in our U.S. schools, I assume the same is true in Canada, but I never should because I like some of the aspects of the Canadian educational system are truly outstanding and we envy them. But I will just say that the reason we don't have more financial literacy at lower levels, like get kids start early, is because we don't have enough teachers that have confidence themselves that they can teach it and teach it well. So the sad truth is the reason it's not taught to our kids is because there aren't enough teachers who know it well enough. That's to say nothing, Jim, of chartered financial accountants or ear, nose, and throat surgeons with MBAs. And and that's the remarkable thing to me, right? Like, like, Information almost sometimes in, in, in your coursework is siloed. So she's a great accountant. She's the chief money person for, for uh, a local business. Well, one, one city over. Um, but you know, she's like, she is the authority and she came through school with a financial leaning with no investing, like investing financial knowledge because it wasn't simply wasn't taught. Mm. And, and that is tragic to me because, you know, she smart, like just put the period there. Smart, um, dedicated, diligent, disciplined. I'm hitting all of the D words apparently. <laughs> and yet didn't have the knowledge. And, you know, yes, it was out there if she looked for the Motley Fool stuff, but she she trusted, she trusted um someone, I don't even know who it was, who said, Oh no, you you need a professional retail advisor. Mm. And or like a, a a financial advisor, it's like this is too complicated for you to do yourself. And 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 just what I what I've said earlier, David, is the ability just to dollar cost average into index funds and do nothing else as, as just as your investing base. That is that is a fifteen minute conversation at most. Mm. 
and what a valuable one that is for those who have it, and we're going to try to reach many more. This podcast is one small example. The Motley Fool writ large is a much larger example, and I'm looking forward to reaching more and more people. I will say, Jim, one of the pet peeves I shared on my volume six of my pet peeves last month is the phrase retail investor. I've just never liked that phrase, and it usually comes from the industry that's selling stuff to us, so we're retail investors to them. I think of myself as an individual investor, and I love that vision from Joel that maybe one day, yes, maybe from his lips to God's ears, as you said, Jim, maybe there will one day be more individual investors than financial advisors who might be taking advantage of so-called retail investors. Well, Jim, it was a delight to have you on this week's Rule Breaker Investing Podcast. Thank you so much for your perspective. Let's do it again sometime soon. Thank you very much, David. Look forward to it. All right. Rule Breaker Mailbag Item number three. This one from Wim Michelson. I hope I've pronounce your name correctly, Wim. Thank you. Hi, David. I started investing in the stock market the full way only since December last year. A whole new world has opened for me, and I'm excited to finally find a way to invest in individual stocks that I feel comfortable with. I feel much better compared to investing in mutual funds, which felt to me much more like a black box. Thank you, Motley Fool. Now, before I continue on to Wim's actual question, I just want to point out, you know, Jim and I just talked about mutual funds. And I think they're a great answer, especially index funds, especially ones where I know what's being indexed. And I'm highly suggesting that anybody listening to me right now who favors funds or ETFs has clarity about what exactly they're investing in. Because if not, mutual funds are much more of a black box than investing directly in individual stocks where you know the companies that you're invested in. So I really appreciate that that point, Wim, especially coming right after that conversation Jim and I had about funds. Anyway, back to your question. You said, I do have some question which might be interesting for the the podcast of which I am a big fan. I have built up a 35 plus portfolio. So 35 plus stocks of stock advisor and rule breaker recommendations, starter stocks and best buys over the past 10 months. And I would say, you, sir, are following best practices. That sounds great to me. The problem I see for myself, Wim goes on, is how to keep my portfolio within limits. There are so many great recommendations and interesting companies. I've sometimes skipped investing in some recommendations because I didn't want my portfolio to get too big. And of course, some of these stocks then started to beat the market big time. My luck again, Wim writes. In closing, how to keep my portfolio size under control? Don't visit the Fool website anymore for a couple of months. And he's laughing at the end of that one. Fool on Wim Michelson. Well, Wim, you've asked one of the timeless questions that gets asked and re-asked, if not every month on Mailbag, then every other month. And it's only a few times a year I go back to this one because I could answer and re-answer this question every month. It's frequently asked. And as a consequence of that, for frequently asked questions, I've tried to build up answers that I can point back to so you can hear past answers to oft-repeated questions. So you just got started the full way you mentioned last December. So let me mention two resources to you that I think can be helpful. The first is that a few times on this podcast over the years, I've talked about how to manage any number of stocks. Whether you have 14 stocks or 140 stocks, I think the answer is the same. I did this long enough ago. I can't even remember the first podcast to have done this, but I can at least tell you that one of the series I do on Rule Breaker Investing is called Old, New, Borrowed, and Blue. 
That episodic series lets me bring you four points each time, and one of them is old. That's the first one, something that I've already said before. And so the date was April 5th, 2017. It was Old, New, Borrowed, Blue, Volume 1. And I highly suggest that you listen to my old point about how to follow any number of stocks and make your portfolio reflect your best vision for our future. So I hope you'll be able to Google that and find that and listen to it. It's not long, but it speaks to how you should give some stocks over time, extra time to follow, some regular time, and some downtime. It's a framework anybody can use. Again, this is one of those points that's recurred, and I try to speak back to it from time to time. That's answer number one for me. Answer number two, earlier this year, I laid down a list to Meredith Kay's point, a new list of six rule breaker principles. It was an important podcast, I think. The date was January 13th. It was kind of a New Year's gift, if you will, to the world, to my listeners. It was called Six Principles of the Rule Breaker Portfolio. And I highly suggest you listen to that and think about principle number four regarding your sleep number. So this was, of course, not just for Wim. This is for anybody with the recurring question, what's the right number of stocks in my portfolio? And by the way, there is no specifically correct answer to that question. It's different strokes for different folks, but I'm trying to speak to all of the folks and all of the strokes with those answers. Thank you for your question, Wim. All right, Rule Breaker Mailbag item number four. Now, sometimes for Mailbag, I'll get a note this month, but it was actually reacting sometimes quite frequently to one from the previous month because notes come in, people think about them, then they write us. And so it's, it's off by a month, but I opened up September with I Fought the Law and the law won. And that generated me some good notes, including Greg Rose. Thank you for this, Greg. David and crew, I enjoyed the recent show on this topic. I fought the law and the law won. Now, for those who didn't hear it, I'm just adding that it was about laws, things like Betteridge's law, which I've mentioned a couple of times today, Parkinson's law, often laws around human behavior that really do, for me anyway, rise to the capital L letter law. And that was the focus, that if you try to fight the law, the law is probably going to win because these are human traits deeply embedded in us. That was the point of I fought the law and the law won. And I encourage people to write out with some more of theirs and their reflections. And that's exactly what Greg has done here. So he said, I listen to the show each week along with Motley Fool Money on Fridays. I'm a rule breaker and stock advisor member. I wanted to share a few of my own from my time in the Navy and on the joint staff. And there are two that he shares. The first is he who plans early plans twice. He said that's associated both with Parkinson's law and our tip from October on inactivity, sometimes greater than sign activity. He goes on, the military rarely lets idle time sit idle. So often you'll find your time is filled planning for potential scenarios. And yet when the actual scenario arises, Greg writes, you don't dust off the plan you made, but rather make a new one. There is utility in the mental exercise of planning for the scenario, but often it feels like make work since you know it won't be used. Now, I see, Greg, you are a Notre Dame man. I see, in addition to being a Navy man, I think Newt Rockney, I think of all the great Notre Dame football greats, and I bet they had some great aphorisms too. Anyway, I like this one. He who plans early plans twice, and you've beautifully illustrated that. I know many of our military listeners 
Some of them, anyway, are nodding their head in agreement right now as I share your wisdom. By the way, it's not my wisdom. It's Greg's. I always hasten to add on our mailbag episodes. So much of this is just me channeling the wisdom of so many fools around the world. It's a delight to bring you these kinds of insights from people who have so much more to share than I do. That's why I love mailbag. Let's go to Greg's number two. He writes, here's another one. If you want it bad, you'll get it bad. That is... Our correspondent writes, undue urgency to meet a deadline is inversely related to the quality of the decision or product. By nature, Greg Rowe writes, the military deals with emergent issues that need decisions in a tight time frame to impact the outcomes, and sometimes that's unavoidable. However, often staffing processes drive poor solutions by not allowing for full vetting of issues, and the outcomes are, quotes, suboptimal. Somewhat related to the last one, point number one, in that you can attempt to plan early, but you can never predict the uniqueness of situations and the narrower range of options you may be left with. Greg Rowe closes, while the nature of the military is certainly different than businesses, no motive for profit, for example, mission assurance and redundancy are more important than efficiency. These lessons from working on a staff may also apply to business as well. Fool on, Greg. And Greg, you bet those apply to business. And I think a lot of us learned at least a thing or two from your mailbag item this month. Thank you for sharing. All right, rule breaker mailbag item number five. Tony Locratondo, thank you very much for this note. Tony reacting to our metal tips, tricks, and life hacks from this month's episode. David slash team, I was listening to your episode, Tips, Tricks, Life Hacks, about how inactivity is rarely better than activity except investing, and have two examples that I relate to as an emergency medicine physician and resident slash student educator, and Tony adds, rugby player. One, sometimes in medicine, it's important not to act too quickly or overreact as you can cause harm with knee-jerk reactions. Well, gee, Tony, that one makes a lot of sense to me. He goes on to add, Law 13, this is from Samuel Shem, the house of God, Law 13, quote, the delivery of medical care is to do as much nothing as possible. Love that. You do add here, in emergency medicine, you sometimes have to think and act quickly, but it's important to know when inactivity is more important than activity. And I think all of us who've ever been to the ER, well, anyway, the general appreciation we have for people on the front lines, but especially the emergency medical physicians, thank you for your service, sir. And I really do appreciate that point about inactivity being so powerful in that context. The second one you share, you say, when you become good at a sport, I think we're headed to rugby here, it may look like you're playing effortlessly, Tony writes, with little extra activity Work smarter, not harder, is the mantra. Tony shares, I end up in more plays and creating more benefit to the team, not because I run around so much, like in my younger days, but because I know where the play will be and I put myself there, letting the play come to me. Hope you find these interesting, even if they may not be podcast-worthy. Very respectfully, Tony Locratondo. Well, clearly, Tony, they were a D-O-M-A-J-M-C in emergency medicine. Those were certainly podcast-worthy. And I want to tack on to Tony's another nut I received from Bruce Bailey. Bruce also led off with medicine. He mentioned Hippocrates' oath, first do no harm. And so I hear you there. 
Bruce also added, he said, second, when I was a young whippersnapper, my mother drilled into me, and I expect yours did too. He says, if you don't have anything nice to say about him or her, don't say anything at all. So those are three great examples of where indeed inactivity, greater than sign activity, it's not just investing, but boy, if rule breaker investing doesn't stand here, firmly letting everybody hearing me right now know that inactivity greater than activity is so very true of how you handle your money as an investor. Anyway, thank you, gentlemen, for those notes. All right, rule breaker mailbag item number six. This one comes from Brandon. Brandon, thank you for this note from a fellow fool and rule breaker. Brandon writes, Dear David, I couldn't help but reach out to you after listening to your Tips and Tricks podcast this month. I was especially intrigued by your tip about building community at church by having people tell their stories. My current church, Brandon writes, has struggled to build a strong community, and I often feel disconnected from other members since few really know much about me. On a side note, I think that's sad, and I'm glad you're writing, Brandon, and I hope they'll get to know you better as, and it's true of you too, as you get to know them better. Anyway, continuing on, you said, I I love this concept of sharing stories for 15 minutes before church. I would gladly share with others and would love to hear others' stories as well, yet I doubt it would work in our church. I've lived in the Midwest my whole life and currently live in a suburb of Minneapolis. Culturally, most Midwesterners are not very forthcoming. Indirect communication and passive aggressiveness are very common. Family and friend units can feel very closed off to outsiders or transplants, as I am. Brandon wrote, I grew up in Wisconsin. I have a hard time, he continues, imagining people being vulnerable enough to share much of themselves in the form of their stories. Problems persisting for decades and across generations is quite normal. Passive aggressiveness does not lead to good conflict resolution or problem solving. Everyone knows the problem, Brandon writes, but no one wants to talk about it. As a rule breaker myself, I tend to be fairly direct and forthcoming since I'm a natural problem solver. It often puts me at odds with those within my family, work, and church. I'm very curious about your thoughts on how to build community and a strong culture when vulnerability and openness are essentially countercultural. On a side note, I'm fascinated by all the great Minnesota companies, 3M, the Toro Company, Target, Ecolab, Best Buy, etc. I'm curious how they deal with the different cultural dynamics of the Midwest and how that affects innovation and problem solving, signed fellow fool and rule breaker, Brandon Girak. You know, I was saying offline beforehand to my producer, Rick, I don't know that I have a great answer to this one. It was more just that I wanted to share that in the first place because I bet someone's going to write in with a great thought for you in future, Brandon. And while it's not totally within the purview of Rule Breaker Investing to go there, you know, one third of this podcast is about life and I love thinking about these things. I guess I have two quick thoughts for you. The first is that old line misattributed to Gandhi. Gandhi never said this. I know you've seen it on bumper stickers. I know it's there in TED Talks. Gandhi, check it, never actually said, be the change you want to see in the world. But regardless of who said it, it's a beautiful sentiment. It sounds of Gandhi, and I think it's probably applicable here. I think, Brandon, if you simply authentically be who you are in the context of family, work, and or church, 
and show vulnerability and share parts of your story at the right moment with the right group of people, I think that's probably the best you or I could think to do in most circumstances. So quick answer number one is be the change. And then quick answer number two, because I'm all about talking out both sides of my mouth and trying to see 360 degrees around things, I'd be the first to say you need to do it at the appropriate moment in an appropriate context. I don't think you can show up from out of the blue, totally outside of other people in the room, totally outside of their experience, and just hit them sideways with what you think they need to hear. I think the best thing you can do is get to know them, hear their stories, and then speak into that at the right moment, being the change that you want to see in that group. But I don't think you can show up, for example, let's have fun here, with an electric blue mohawk haircut in an Amish meeting and say, hey, we need to loosen up a little bit more in this community. You might be right. I have nothing to say for or against the Amish in this context. I'm having fun. But you can see what a fish out of water you would be trying to be the change. So I think you need to get to know a group of people. Isn't that the story of the movie Dances with Wolves? Don't I remember that having seen it a couple decades ago, doesn't Kevin Costner's character take the time to get to know the Native Americans and live within their culture before he can make a real contribution? Side note, I tried to bring that movie to movie night with our kids when they were teenagers some years ago, and I made a tragic mistake. Turns out there are two versions of Dances with Wolves. There's the one I saw in the theater back in the day, the year it came out, and then there's Dances with Wolves, uncut, the long version, with approximately, this is my call, 45 minutes of additional footage that is largely pictures from nature. That's right. If you want to see herds march across the American West, supposedly back in the 19th century, boy, is that version for you. Our family had to quit at about the two-hour point when I started asking, what happened to the movie that I saw? And I realized, oh my gosh, I've just put my kids through half an hour of watching with beautiful musical accompaniment but no plot progression, a lot of wildlife. Maybe I clicked the wrong version on my Netflix queue back when we used to order DVDs. Anyway, there's a life hack for anybody. Dances with Wolves. But Brandon, I hope that's been helpful. I think we all need to have a little Dances with Wolves in us as we get to know a community and try to improve it. And I love where your note came from. Thank you for sharing. All right. Rule Breaker Mailbag item number seven. Lucky seven. Thank you, Colin Shannon. I'm going to give your Twitter handle. And it will become increasingly clear why I'm doing that at Colin underscore Shannon. Thank you for this note. Rule Breakers Investing, Colin writes, I hope you're doing well. My submission to the mailbag is not an investing question, but a question that is to cure my own curiosity. A couple of months ago, I received a notification saying that David Gardner has followed me on Twitter. Now, being a young investor, 23 years old, who started during the pandemic and has been listening to the Motley Fool's podcasts faithfully since then, I was shocked to see that David Gardner had followed me. I figured that you must follow tens of thousands of people, as some influencers do, but I quickly realized that I was one of the 470 people you follow. I figured it must be an accident and will be quickly remedied when a tweet or retweet of mine, Colin writes, comes across your timeline. But it's been a couple of months and the David Gardner profile still says, quotes, follows you. Maybe you noticed that I work in college basketball, so you followed me out of your love of sports. Maybe my meager amount of tweets and retweets on life, politics, and investing hit a Twitter niche that you were interested in. Or maybe, love this phrase here, 
you're an educated man, Colin, or maybe Occam's razor applies. And the simplest explanation is true that I liked one of your tweets and you accidentally followed me. I write this mailbag submission with the knowledge this could lose me the Twitter follow if Occam's razor applies. But my curiosity made me ask, why did you follow me on Twitter? Signed, Colin Shannon. Or as we shall say once again, at Colin underscore Shannon, spelled Colin and Shannon as English native speakers would expect. And in this brief response, let me first encourage anybody else to follow at Colin underscore Shannon. I see, Colin, you're at about 300 followers right now. I hope that we can get you to at least 320 based on anybody hearing me right now. A lot of us do use or appreciate Twitter. I'm going to say, please follow Colin underscore Shannon so we can further confuse this delightful 23-year-old. You know, Colin, I don't exactly remember other than when somebody says something interesting or funny, I often will click and see who they are. And I saw from your profile that you are a basketball graduate assistant at Oakland University. Now, I don't know Oakland University that well, although I do believe this is the one in Michigan, which will confuse a fair number of people. But, you know, Colin, I'm thinking a combination of a couple of things. First of all, you said something capital F, foolish, you're connected in. You're a Motley Fool fan. I like that. Second, college basketball. Check. I like that. Third, you just used Occam's razor in your note to me. Anybody who can rock Occam's razor, college basketball, and foolishness gets my follow. So I don't remember exactly what the instinct is, but here's one commitment I can make to you, Colin. I am never going to unfollow you on Twitter unless you try to make me for some good reason. Thanks for the note. All right, Rule Breaker mailbag items number eight and nine. I mentioned at the top, my friend Aaron Bush joining us again this week. Aaron, a delight to have you. Thanks for having me, David. You are very welcome, Aaron. And we're going to talk a little bit about that at the end, but that's Rule Breaker mailbag item number nine. Let's start with the real reason I thought let's have Aaron on this week because we're talking some crypto here with Rule Breaker mailbag item number eight. This comes from Arvind Sharma, who wrote a really nice note that I'm not even reading, but I am going to read this part. David, thank you for inviting Aaron and John Rotanti. It was nice to hear their views on inflation, crypto, and its role in the economy. Pretty sure Arvind is reacting to last month's mailbag when Aaron and I and John talked about crypto, among other things. Thank you, says Arvind. After hearing Aaron's comments on cryptocurrency to use to interact with the community-built distributed networks to serve a purpose or address a problem, Arvin writes, I was thinking about one similar concept, open source codes. Open source codes are designed and developed, maintained, Arvin writes, by the community. For example, the world-famous operating system of my days, Linux, was designed and built and supported by the community. It was, all caps, free. So is it fair to say, if Linux were to be built today in the crypto blockchain world, Aaron, it could be designed in a way where those who contribute to building this capability might be rewarded with, let us say, Linux cryptos? And those who would use Linux, would they need now to pay using Linux cryptocurrency? Arvin says, I'm using Linux as just an example. I understand it's designed to be free. In closing, I understand crypto and blockchain versus open sources, maybe comparing apples to oranges. My brother Tom Gardner has always wittily pointed out that they're both fruits. Anyway, having said that, for a novice like me, Arvin asks, does this Linux example 
Give us an easy way to explain or think about cryptos. Curious to know your team's thoughts. Thank you, writes Arvin. Now, I maybe have some thoughts, but whatever my thoughts are, I subvert them to my pal Aaron, who's graciously hopped off of his horse. Yep, Aaron lives in Texas now, so Aaron, obviously you have a horse. You just hopped off your horse (laughs) to join the podcast and contribute some thoughts back to Arvin and anybody else who's wondering, Aaron Bush, what about open source software and the idea that intellectual property can be compartmentalized into a cryptocurrency? And what are your thoughts in that direction? Yeah, and I look forward to hearing your thoughts on this too, David. But Arvin, I mean, I think that's a that's a great observation and great thinking. Here, here is I think about it, and I think you know to look forward, we almost need to take a step back and look in the past too. Mm. Um, the first wave of the internet was really about building the protocols and the software that everything runs on, um, and Linux was part of that that era. But you know, also projects like. Hypertext Transfer Protocol, HTTP, the File Transfer Protocol, FTP, which is the backbone mm. of the internet, the domain name system, which is DNS, and you know, there's so many more. And these are increasingly known as thin protocols. Uh, tremendous work to develop them led to an enormous value creation, but the protocols themselves and the people who worked on them essentially captured zero of that value. The second wave of the internet was the permissionless innovation that those protocols enabled. Individuals and companies of all types took those protocols and used them to build great experiences. And there, there are too many examples to name, but much of the Motley Fool's stock picking success over the tw- past 25 years, for example, has come from intelligently riding that wave. Companies like Amazon and Netflix and Booking and Salesforce and even the Motley Fool itself created value for a lot of people by leveraging those open protocols built in the early days of the internet um, and then capturing much of that value through building corporations. Wow. I feel like, yeah, I I lived through and created part of that history, but it took Aaron to actually put it into the context of history to understand what the heck's been happening around Full HQ for 29 years. Wow, Aaron, thanks. Keep going. Sure. And so for the most part, that success of that second wave of the internet has been a hugely positive force for humanity. And I don't see that going away. But it's also not perfect. It's not the only answer to every problem. And it's not the only path of innovation. For example, we see social media companies are entangled in censorship issues. Financial companies are not necessarily open to all types of people. Creators and entrepreneurs are increasingly beholden to platforms that can change the rules at any time and often take larger fees than sometimes Mm. they're worth. And a lot of the value created today is mostly captured by ever larger and more centralized and more regulated entities, which by effect also stifles innovation to some degree. So although companies which built on those protocols can be amazing forces for good and create lots of value, they're not perfect and they're not the only answer, which is what has led to the third wave of the internet, increasingly known as Web3 today, uh, which is in some ways going back to the early roots of the internet with the ethos of openness, trustlessness, and permissionless innovation and participation again, but in a way where the value is captured in a more decentralized, user-friendly way. And crypto is one piece of Web3, and these new protocols like Bitcoin, Ethereum, and others are now occasionally called fat protocols, um, in contrast to the thin protocols that I mentioned of old. And this way, um, the protocols 
not uh, not only our digital infrastructure, but are owned and governed and operated through being tokenized. And these tokens don't just create ecosystems, but economies around these protocols. And those who contribute to these protocols, the development of the next phase of the internet, actually capture that value. And it enables people to work together and create and capture value in more decentralized ways. And in many ways, it also enables users and creators to retain more value in new ways too. Um, Plus, (laughs) the, the financial element creates incentives, which is why there's so many people innovating in this space today. And it's still very early, but it's so fascinating to watch um, everything unfold. And there are real success stories emerging. The last thing I'll say is that you know there is much more to Web3 than crypto and internet money. But it is important because these tokens not only are the means by which digital goods and services are paid for, but they're the means by which people get paid for contributing to these open networks, the means by which groups of anonymous and decentralized people all around the world um, decide how to work together and decide on the future of these projects. It's the means by which security in some cases works and much more. So it's very complex you know, in the same way that the early internet was complex. Um, but really, in short, it set the foundation for people to come together and work on and participate in big, important projects in new ways. And these aren't corporations or LLCs. They're something new, um, but maybe just as, if not more important in the digital world. And as time goes on, um, I think everything will become more user-friendly and more intuitive. But we're at an exciting time. So you know, really, just to wrap that up, Arvind, I think your observation is spot on. Not all software you know, needs to be tokenized and turned into some type of crypto platform, but it definitely has a role for taking the internet to its next stage of evolution, which is very exciting. Absolutely brilliant, Aaron. Thank you for that cogent explanation. It's reminding me, sometime in the new year, park yourself a week where I'd love to have you on and let's just feature non-fungible tokens for one week of the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast. I'm very interested in this. There seems like some crazy bluster. And also, but when you look through the smoke, some very real stuff happening. You're great at often seeing the, the signal and helping us ignore the noise. I think there's a lot of noise in NFTs, non-fungible tokens. But a lot of us hearing me right now know more about that than I do. Maybe not as much as Aaron, but more. A lot of us don't yet know what the heck NFT stands for or why you and I should care. Aaron, I tend to plan this podcast out about 10 weeks in advance. So I already know what I'm doing into January, but would you be willing to come back in January and let's talk in the new year about NFTs? Of course, let's do it. That'll be fun. Awesome. Well, before then, let's spend one more mailbag item together. Here we go. Closing the show this week, arguably from the sublime to the ridiculous. We'll see. It's a phrase I often find myself using because I like to live in both places here on Rule Breaker Investing Podcast and at the fool, right? the sublime, and the ridiculous. So let's go to Rule Breaker Mailbag item number nine. Now, I'm going to hasten to add that this note is not at all ridiculous. It's ridiculous that I would have featured something on this show that would have me reading this note back. So any ridiculousness, and I'm not even going to apologize for it because I kind of love it, is from me. Thank you, Riley Harriman, for this note. Hey, David, while listening to your podcast about pet peeves, I was surprised to hear that you thought your welcome was the proper response to a thank you and saw the the response, no problem, as potentially inappropriate. Now, I need to pause this for a second. Just remind, this was from our Pet Peeves podcast last month. I've already referenced this a few times. But yeah, when someone says thank you, when I say, for example, thank you, 
I don't want to air this pet peeve again, Aaron, but we're going to get to your thoughts very quickly. When I say thank you, I kind of love it when somebody says you're welcome. And when somebody goes, no problem. I'm like, well, first of all, I didn't think I was creating a problem. I was just trying to thank you. So no problem has always felt kind of like a, a wet prickly to me, like a, a wet willy, like, like your, your obnoxious uncle licks their finger and sticks it in your ear. It's a little bit more like that, no problem, or, or no worries, where I want to say to the person, I wasn't worrying at all. You're, you thought I was worrying? I, I was just trying to thank you. Anyway, that's what we're talking about here, what Riley is reacting to. I really love this. This is a note from a college student. It continues, as a college student, I almost religiously say, no problem in response to thank you, as I feel almost rude saying, you're welcome. A quick internet search, Riley writes, shows it's a linguistic issue, and I love this because Riley goes on to say that Riley asked their linguistics professor at college. I think this is Wake Forest University, if I'm seeing this right, and, and she said, this professor says, well, older generations say you're welcome because they see the act of helping as something that's out of the way and not expected. Your generation, this professor says to Riley, often uses no problem because the act of helping is a given and you don't want the receiver of that help to feel guilty or obligated to return a favor. Now, that does seem to be an important point here, Aaron, as we're about to open this up because I want to hear you and I are different generations, Aaron. We're going to talk about this. I don't think either's wrong, Riley concludes, necessarily. I actually think it's interesting and funny, however, that baby boomers by the way, I'm not a baby boomer, but anyway, the baby boomers tend to feel disrespected by no problem or no worries. So I'm on behalf of my whole generation trying to clarify no problem. Love your podcast and your service. Best, Riley Harriman. Well, I, I, I guess I could almost restate once again what I think, but I think I've already done that enough. Aaron, what is your reaction to Riley's note? I can't say that I've ever thought about this before, um, <laughs> but I... I I understand. I guess as I'm thinking about this, no problem <laughs> in my sphere has often been more casual and friendly, while your welcome is much more formal. Mm. And so, you know, if you're, you know, you're hanging out with a friend and, you know, they, they grab you something, um, you say thank you and they say you're welcome. Um, it, you know, it could be, <laughs> it often maybe can be interpreted as maybe there's a little bit of, angst behind um, that that comment and maybe they're not as welcome as as you would want them to be so I think uh, I think Riley might be right in saying that no problem is a way to sort of remove any social indebtedness from the situation mm. um, I feel like it's so like commonly said though that I don't think anyone really thinks about that <laughs> when they <laughs> when they say it but I think that is a valid observation. I think that that is important, what you've said and, and what Riley has pointed out, and, and admirable as well, because we don't want people to feel beholden. Like, I see the instinct there. And, and so I, I guess I want to say, even though I'm not a baby boomer, I, I will admit I grew up as a little kid at the age of nine. Well, I went to a private school, but I literally wore a jacket and tie to every day of classes in elementary school. So thank you and you're welcome was probably a little bit more formal and just felt natural. One of my favorite responses when I say thank you to someone is, you're so welcome. And that's more of a Southernism, I think, but it's always made me feel warm inside. But it might make others feel obligated. So I'm glad we're talking about this, even though arguably 
No one should still be listening to this podcast at this point this week, but it does remind me, Aaron, of a different texting protocol that I, I bet you're familiar with, but I discovered with my kids. So from day one, when AOL chat rooms showed up about 25 years ago, I always have tried to perfectly punctuate anything that I'm saying to somebody in a live chat. I still do it on Zoom chats or anybody else's live streaming chat. If I'm typing something, if I'm texting you, my pal, my friend, my friend, Aaron, my son, Gabe, my wife's dad, it doesn't matter. I'm always fully punctuating things. But is this true, Aaron? My understanding of those approximately 25 years, which I define as the length of a generation, approximately 25 years younger than I am, if you put a period on the end of a sentence via text, you're like, that's a huge point. I mean, it's a tiny little point, but it's a huge point. Is that right? I think so. Or it's just, it's not necessarily a positive tone. It's like a very serious tone. So by by generation, we overuse exclamation marks. Okay. All right. So, I mean, we all have our foibles and we all have our unique cultural identities. And I, I am the first to say, I don't love generalizations. Earlier in the show, we kind of generalized, thanks to one of my correspondents, about the Midwest. And a lot of people in the Midwest might say, that's not actually how it is in my part of the Midwest. But a lot of other people might say, well, that's a fair generalization about Midwesterners. Well, we're generalizing right now about generations, which, yes, up to a certain point works, but I'm the first to start rebelling if we start expecting every baby boomer to think this or every Gen Xer or Gen Y or Z to say that. It's overweening at that point. Do you agree? I think so. I mean, I would just say that I have a feeling most people do not think about it to this degree. And so <laughs> part of why I love coming on and just talking about these crazy topics is because, David, you just make me think about words and language so much more than I, I would otherwise. Um, so it's just a fun conversation. Well, I appreciate that, Aaron. And I'll close by saying that we had a brief talk about the phrase wing it, because for me, I have a national holiday. Well, it's just my own personal holiday every year, October 24th where I encourage myself and anybody else to wing it sometimes in life. And I have a story attached to that. And if you follow me on Twitter, you would have seen that on October 24th, which was Sunday of this past week, because that's wing it day for me. But more importantly, where did the phrase I started wondering wing it come from? As it turns out, it comes from the theater. So I love, you know, I love words and phrases and etymologies. And it came from, I think the first use was around 1885, if I saw it right. And it was somebody waiting in the wings as an actor who needed to somehow intervene on stage because something's gone wrong, or maybe they're the understudy, whatever it is, they're, they're determining quickly in the wings what they're about to pop up on stage to do. They are winging it. So I'm glad we used the phrase wing it to close so I could share that. But yeah, I do think, Aaron, that so much of our individual mindsets is, in fact, revealed through the language that we, I was going to say choose to use, but I'll say use. Not all of us are that intentional, nor am I, with every single thing said. But some of my biggest breakthroughs as a rule breaker is noticing that everybody's using this or that phrase in finance. And I think they're getting it wrong or they don't know the history of that. And we've talked about the word investing and investeria as an example. We're not going to do that. But anyway, Aaron, thank you for appreciating that about me. And I think that we can all do it. It's not like I was a major in etymology. Well, I was an English major, but not etymology. But we can all find out the origins of things and, and learn something from that. Aaron, you've done a great job thinking about the origin of very recent things that are very powerful over the next 30 to 100 years. Thank you so much for your insights, not just on cryptocurrency, but of course, lots of rule breaker insights over the years. And I'm looking forward already to January. 
I don't know whether to say no problem or you're welcome back, but I'll just say it's it's always a pleasure uh, to be on, David. <laughs> I always look forward to these foolish conversations. Thank you, Aaron Bush. And thanks, everybody, for staying with us all hour-ish long this week for the October Mailbag for Rule Breaker Investing. We hope you have a great week ahead. I want to mention that Matt Argusinger is joining us next week to talk real estate investing, something We've really not done much. You know, I remember earlier this year, I had Olin Douglas on to talk about venture capital investing. Investing takes many forms. Admittedly, common stocks tends to dominate my own time, but I want to always be sharing out other forms of investing. And boy, did Olin do a great job with venture capital investing. And will Matthew do a great job next week with real estate investing, writ large and writ foolishly, only next week on Rule Breaker Investing. Again, thanks to my guests, Aaron Bush and Jim Gillies. And as always, my producer, Rick Engdahl. Have a great week ahead. Fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.